0: To see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. There was once a man who invited a friend from the office to come over for dinner, and when they got to his house, the man greeted his wife, told her she looked pretty, and asked her about her day. Then, when they sat down for dinner, he complimented the food and even offered to do the dishes. The man's friend was shocked because he had never seen someone treat their wife so well. And when they were finally alone, he asked his host, why do you treat your wife so well? And the host simply responded, well, because I love her and it makes our marriage happier. Inspired, the friend thought, hey, maybe I should try that. So the next day, he gets home from work, he greets his wife, He tells her she looks pretty, and he even says, sweetheart, I am the luckiest guy in the whole world. How was your day? And when he said that, she burst into tears. And so the man says, honey, what's wrong? And his wife said, I have just had the worst day, and now you've come home drunk. (laughs) I don't know many marriages older than a year that can be described as a fairy tale. Marriage is good And it's a glorious gift from God, but it takes work to maintain a healthy marriage. If you are not actively working to improve your marriage, then it will grow stagnant. But the good news is that sometimes all you need is a picture of a healthy, well-functioning marriage to get out of your rut and to get back on track. And today in Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to get one of the clearest pictures of what a healthy biblical marriage should look like. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. If you're using a huge Bible, it's on 1,162, page 1,162. And as you're turning, let me tell you, when, when I first told Katie that we'd be preaching through the book of Ephesians, she actually said to me, I'll oh, finally, a sermon from Ephesians that's not about marriage, because if you've been in the church for long, you've probably heard Ephesians 5 preached three, four, five, six times, and... And I love that we've been able to walk through every verse of the book of Ephesians because there's so much more to it than just this passage. But the reason this passage is preached so often is because we're living in a world where there's so much debate and confusion about about what marriage even is, even within the church. And in Ephesians chapter 5, we find one of easily the most hated passages of our day. We find the phrase, wives, submit to your husbands. I remember when I was a new Christian, I read Ephesians 5 for the first time and I just felt sick in my stomach. Like I loved Jesus and, and I believed in the Bible, but, but I was still new to, to all that it contained. And I just thought to myself, how could something so sexist and outdated be in the Bible? And so I struggled with this passage personally for a long time. And I'm sure many of you have too. So as we dive into this text, we're gonna walk through every verse And we're going to wrestle with this passage together and see what it actually says. And as we do, my prayer is not only that you would accept God's good design for marriage, but that you would see it as beautiful. Because in Ephesians 5, we're going to find three ways Christians are called to serve. First, in verses 18 through 21, all are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Second, in verses 22 through 24, wives are called to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And third, in verses 25 through 33, husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. All submitting to one another, wives submitting to husbands, and husbands loving their wives. What does that all mean? Well, let's pray and find out. Heavenly Father, as we navigate this difficult subject of our day, We earnestly wanna know what your will is. We wanna know what your actual design for marriage is rather than some man-made, culturally twisted definition. So Lord, I ask that you would guide my words, grant clarity to our minds, and give humility to our hearts as we seek your face. Amen. Look at me to verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's stop there. In the old testament, whether it was Moses' tabernacle or Solomon's temple, it was said that the Spirit of the Lord would fill that place. There was that language of filling always associated with the spirit. And in verse 18, Paul is using those same images from the Old Testament, that same language of being filled with the spirit. But here he's not talking about the tabernacle or the temple, but he's talking about the church. I was always taught that my body was a temple. And 90% of the time, this is what was being taught. Hey, your body's a temple, so don't get a tattoo. Like that was the motivation 90% of the time when we talked about my body being a temple, which is a terrible argument because have you ever seen a temple? There's pictures everywhere. That's a terrible <laughs> argument for no tattoos. Like there may be wisdom that may discourage you from, from putting, getting a tattoo, but that's not the verse. That's not what the Bible's talking about at all. In fact, I realized it because I went through and I checked it every single time. Every time Paul writes, your body is a temple, He is not speaking in the singular, he's speaking in the plural. In English, when we use the word you, we can either mean you as a singular person or you all as a group of people. And I'll say actually in Greek, it's crystal clear. It's always clear if he's talking to multiple people or single people. And in Texas, we actually solved this problem by saying y'all, so you're welcome for that. So if you translate Paul into Texan, he'd be saying, y'all's body is a temple. Now, this isn't to say that we're not individually indwelt by the Spirit. Paul is very clear that we are all, if we are Christians, indwelt by the Spirit. And he says this in Romans 8. But every time Paul calls us a temple... He's not talking about our individual bodies as temples. Every single time he uses this language, he's talking about the body of Christ as the temple. Even here in verse 18, Paul's saying, y'all do not get drunk with wine, but y'all be filled with the spirit. He's using temple language. And I completely missed this two weeks ago, which is part of the reason why I wanted to go all the way back to verse 18. And here, Paul is using temple language. And that's why, that's why he brings up uh, getting drunk. I miss this too. Because remember what Nadab and Abihu did. They got drunk and they walked into the tabernacle. They offered up strange fire and God killed them. And that's also why Paul's talking about singing. Because in the Old Testament, the priests and the Levites were the worship leaders of Israel. And here Paul's painting a picture. In this picture, every time the church gathers for worship, we are all priests serving in a new temple. That's why we all sing addressing one another. When you you became a part of this church, you also joined the church choir. And I do not care if you're out of tune or off beat or cannot sing to save your life. Paul is telling you that you and I, it is our jobs as a kingdom of priests to address one another in song and sing to the Lord with our hearts. Listen to me, church. You do not come to church just to get something out of it. Church is not like going to the movies where you can just watch and not participate. The Sunday worship gathering is much more about what you can bring to the service than what you can get out of it. And so many churches miss this, and the average worship service, sadly, has been reduced to a mere performance, where the band performs and the speaker performs, and then everybody goes home. And you you could have almost not been there, which is why... Online church has become so prevalent because what's the difference if I'm sitting alone in my house versus there? I didn't participate either way. But the goal of our worship services should be one where everyone participates, where everybody prays together. Everybody sings, everybody reads, everybody amens. What's happening right now is a participatory, participatory corporate experience where you are worshiping. On Sunday mornings, we all give up all of our personal preferences because to worship together where the spirit of God dwells, it is better to be there than to be isolated. That's why the style of music, old or new, does not matter. That's part of what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, to give up your preferences for the benefit of another. What did Jesus say? Wash one another's feet. Love one another as I have loved you. This is at the heart of what it means to submit to one another. That even the apostle Paul says, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win some. The way we submit to one another is by giving up what we want and by going out of our way to serve one another. That every time you come to church, you should be thinking, who can I serve today? Who can I encourage? Who can I pray for? How can I love these people like Jesus loved me? And this is where we utterly failed most churches during COVID. Like it doesn't matter if you are a masking church or, or a free range church, so to speak. It does not matter what policies you, impl- you implement But so many churches, the attitude of the majority of people is, I want it my way. This is what I want. This is what I believe. And there were some churches that says, I want to give up what I want for the other. And that should be our mindset no matter what. And let me say this. If you're having trouble feeling affections toward your fellow Christians in this church, the solution is to go ahead and serve them. Don't waste time trying to decide if you feel love towards them. Go ahead and choose to love them. We're commanded to love, which means love is a choice. It is not an emotion. Love is a choice you make regardless of how you feel. You don't have to like somebody at all to love them. That's why we're commanded to love our enemies. But you are called to love everybody. And this is one of the greatest secrets of life is that when you choose to love someone, over time you will eventually come to feel love for them and to care for them and maybe even like them. It's a process. But if you wait until your heart feels emotionally ready to love them, then it's never going to happen. So go ahead and live like you love them, and the emotions will follow. Now this seems mostly natural for us. Like this, everything I preached so far, most churches would get a sound amen, because we live in a society that champion champions equality. But these words would have been revolutionary in Paul's day. And as this letter was read aloud to the Ephesian church, most people would have been thinking, okay, that sounds nice, but but how is this really going to look in the real world? And so Paul goes on uh, for the rest of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six to give three examples of what this looks like. Wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. Why did he choose those three groups? Because that's how people thought back then. That's how they Imagine the family unit from those three groups. Listen to this. This is a household code from Aristotle. Aristotle writes, the first and fewest possible parts of the family are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. Sound familiar? Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband, rules over wife and children. For the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the elder and full grown is superior to the younger and more mature. Like this is classic thousands of years old and even recently in the last couple of years is women and children and slaves are inferior to men and so they should rule over them. That's the the mindset of Aristotle and most of the people living in Paul's day. So when Paul wrote this message, he was living in a world where man was the head of the household. He ruled over everyone. He was superior to everyone. He was more valuable than everyone. And everyone existed for his pleasure and good. And guys like Aristotle were actively teaching these things. And they were universally accepted. And so here comes Paul, and he's going to give us his own household code. And he's going to talk about these three groups, but he's going to do it in a very different way from Aristotle. Look to verse 22. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Now stop there. I know that this is already offensive to our modern ears, but but remember what Aristotle wrote and compare it to what Paul wrote. The fact that Paul not only addresses the women directly, but the fact that he addresses them first would have been revolutionary. Back then, When you had all of these household codes, they were only written to the men, because why would you need to address the women? You write to the patriarch, you write to the head of the household. But here, Paul addresses wives directly, and he calls them to willingly participate in the plan of God by serving their husbands, because they too are filled with the Spirit, priests in the temple of God. That's why Paul adds the phrase, as to the Lord, because he understood that a wife's submission to her husband is an act of worship to the Lord. So what is submission? Look to verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and his Savior is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Submission does not mean slavery. Submission does not mean that one is superior to the other. Submission doesn't mean unthinking obedience. But Paul tells us that in marriage, the husband and the wife each have roles to play. The wife, the role of the church, and the husband, the role of the Savior. Which is why in just a couple verses, Paul is going to command the husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church in that he died for her. And we'll get to more of the husband's calling in a moment. But here, Paul is teaching that in the same way the church voluntarily, freely, and joyfully follows Christ, so wives should voluntarily, freely, and joyfully follow the leadership of their husbands. Almost every culture has distorted God's design for men and women. On the one hand, you have patriarchy, where women are belittled and abused, where where, where their value is lesser to men. And then on the other hand, you have a kind of radical feminism where the solution is to get rid of all distinction between men and women. There is nothing between, there is no difference between the two of you and don't tell me otherwise. But here at our church, we reject both a patriarchal view and a radical feministic view. And instead at Horican Baptist Church, we we hold to what's called complementarianism. Complementarianism teaches that God made men and women equal in value, yet each possessing different but complementary roles and responsibilities within marriage. Mm-hmm. You can think of marriage as a kind of dance where one partner leads and the other follows. And in marriage, the husband is called to lead. But you may be wondering, why the husband? I mean, if a wife is a better leader, why should she not lead? And I'll say this, because God designed men and women to be equal in dignity, value, and worth, yet each possessing different but complementary roles within the family. And not only is this clear in Ephesians 5, but this actually goes all the way back to Genesis. John Stott said on this text, this isn't chauvinism, this is creationism. That Paul is simply implementing what happened at creation in the home. So you go all the way back to Genesis when God made mankind in his image, both male and female made in his image, yet man and women are made very differently to complement one another. So God made man from the dust, but God made the woman from the man. The man was refined from the dust, but the woman was doubly refined. Pastor Ray Ortland described it this way, men, we are like clay pots, but our wives are like elegant china. The great preacher Matthew Henry wrote on that passage, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. The differences between men and women are not accidental from the beginning. God had a beautiful purposeful design for both genders. And our world is desperately uh, trying to destroy any distinction between man and woman. Our world is heading at full speed towards a kind of radical feminism that would destroy the very idea of gender. But in the Bible, gender is a good gift of God. It's a part of God's beautiful design for how we're to live as divine image bearers. God made Adam first, and because he was made first, Adam had the responsibility to lead and to love and to provide and to protect his bride. But how did Adam do? He failed. He utterly failed. In Genesis 3, when the serpent tempted Eve, Adam was with Eve the entire time. Like growing up, I always imagined that Eve was off here with a serpent, Adam was just busy doing something else, and then after Eve had been deceived, she's like, hey, Adam, come eat this. You don't know where I got it from. But according to the scriptures, Adam was there the entire time. Listen to this, Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The entire time the serpent was denying God's word and was tempting Eve, Adam sat idly by. He was passive the entire time. He did not slap the fruit out of her hand. He did not remind her of the word of God. He did not protect her from the serpent. He didn't cast the serpent out of the garden. Adam failed. And that's why when when God shows up, who does he call to account? Not Eve. Eve not even the serpent but he calls upon Adam. Adam, where are you? Eve was the first to eat. So so it makes sense in my mind that Eve should be the most guilty, but when God called man to answer for what he had done, he called Adam. Because Adam failed to lead, he failed to protect his bride. And that's why in Ephesians, wives are still called to submit to their husbands because every husband will have to stand before God one day and they will have to give an account for how they led their family just like Adam did. And that will be a terrible day for many men. Every person's going to have to account for their lives. But for the things which you are responsible for, there is a greater accounting. There is a greater reckoning. That's why James even tells us not many of you should be pastored because you're going to be judged more strictly. And for fathers as head of the household, the reason they have that that leadership is because they have the responsibility and the burden of having to answer to God for how they led. and, And look at the standard by which they'll be judged. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. So how should husbands love their wives? With a sacrificial, self-giving, humble love that is willing to die for her. Submission sounds like a burden until you see what the husbands are called to. Husbands, are you willing to love like this? Will you choose every day to love your wife and to serve her and to sacrifice for her? And I'm not just talking about physically. I'm also talking about spiritually. Look to verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ came down from heaven with an eye on his bride. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride and with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Why did he die? To save and to purify and to sanctify and to mature the church so that one day the bride of Christ would stand before the Lord as holy and without blemish. In the same way, In the same way, every husband is responsible for the spiritual well-being of his wife. Husbands, how often do you read the Bible with your wives? How often do you pray for your wives? How often do you pray with your wives? How often do you lead your family in family devotions? And what are you going to do to help your spouse become the woman of God that God wants her to be? Husband, these are the kinds of questions that you will have to answer before God one day. And Paul does not stop there. Verse 28, he goes on. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now you see the difference between Aristotle and Paul so clearly displayed. Like Aristotle, husbands, you rule, whatever pleases you, that's what you do. But Paul says, husbands, everything you do must be for the benefit of those under your authority. In verse 28, Paul switches from the cross to creation and the church. Husbands, love your wives because you are one flesh. Paul has been making this point all throughout the book of Ephesians. If you're a Christian, then you are a member of Christ's body. And so to slander or to hurt or to sin against a fellow member of the body is hurting yourself. It's foolish. And the same is true for those who are one flesh. What does it look like within marriage? What do, what do these roles look like? Let me, let me give you a common example. Imagine a wife who believes that drinking alcohol is a sin, but her husband disagrees and it bothers her when he drinks. So in that situation, the husband should happily and joyfully sacrifice drinking for the sake of his wife because his wife is his own flesh. And in that situation, to drink would be to hurt his own flesh. And now imagine a husband who thinks that drinking is wrong and his wife doesn't have a problem with it at all. She doesn't think it's a sin. In that situation, the wife should submit to her husband and not drink. Now, if both of you think that drinking is okay, then raise a glass for the glory of God. But in a marriage, the husband gets a vote, the wife gets a vote, and both are actively voting for the good of the other. So what do you do when you can't agree? In that situation, the husband gets the deciding vote because he's going to ultimately have to give an account for how he led his family. Like this is not a situation. Submission does not involve ignoring the voice of your wife. You need her counsel and wisdom and you need to know what she wants and desires and what would be best for her. Like I'll even say early in marriage, we were trying to implement this, Katie and I. And there was a decision as we moved of whether or not I'd be a youth pastor at this church. And I was really desperate to, to serve in this church. I, I, just, I just wanted to, even though there was a lot of red flags and, and things. And I did not want to know what Katie's thoughts were. So we just went ahead and did it. Like, like she submitted in that decision and she was awesome. But if I had been a loving self-sacrificial husband, I would have talked with her and talked through it and understood how this would have affected her. Like that is not biblical leadership. That was biblical submission on her part, but that is not biblical leadership. And just as a side note, this needs to be said. In a situation where there is physical or sexual abuse, that is not a situation where submission is called for. That's a situation where the police are called for. If you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship, your first priority needs to be safety and then to address the abuse and the accountability for the abuser. So back in Kansas City, we actually, it was a heartbreaking situation. A member of our church who's a friend of mine, I I was shocked whenever it it came to surface, physically abusing his wife, uh, ran from the church, ran from all discipline of the church. It was a year long process where the elders were pleading with him to repent and they were separated. He would not apologize for what he had done. And so finally they brought it before the whole church and we excommunicated him. We removed him from membership because he had abused his wife was such a sad situation, but the one consolation was that in that moment, the church was able to weep for the wife and to pray for her and to support her in a way that I have never seen before. Listen, if we embrace God's design for male leadership within a marriage, but we do not hold men accountable when they abuse that responsibility, then we have failed as a church. Amen. Husbands are called to love and to cherish and to care for their wives because marriage is a one flesh union. All the way back in the beginning, it was God's design that in marriage, two me's would become an us. That two individuals should part from their families and become a new family. That two people should enjoy one another in sinless sexual intimacy, a one flesh union. One flesh because the rib that was taken from Adam is returned to Eve, but now in a much more enjoyable way. There are many people who think that Jesus never spoke about marriage, but that's simply not true. In Matthew 19, when the Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce, he answered them by quoting Genesis 2.24, the same verse that Paul quotes here in verse 31. Jesus said, "'Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female?' And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Marriage is a sacred institution because not only did God establish it, but every time that a man and woman make vows to one another and consummate that ma- marriage, God creates that one flesh union, and God joins them together in a supernatural bond. And the most glorious part of marriage is the mystery of it in verse 32. Did you see that? Now, I don't know any married couple who hasn't fallen into bed after a long and difficult day where they've struggled to understand each other only to stare up at the ceiling and say, marriage is such a mystery. (laughs) Being married is hard. Having a good marriage is harder. But that is not what Paul is talking about in verse 32. In verse 32, Paul uses the Greek word mysterion. Mysterion means something secret or hidden. So what is the mystery of marriage? What is the secret? What is this hidden meaning? It's the same mystery Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter three. And here in Ephesians five, Paul tells us that marriage is actually a picture of Christ and the church. This means at least two things. First, this mystery is the perfect model for marriage. The foundation behind every command in this passage is the gospel. You cannot understand or even imagine what a good marriage might look like without this picture. Because in this picture, we see pure, unconditional, covenantal love. Christ never breaks his vow. He never forsakes his bride, even when she is unfaithful. In fact, he goes out of his way to die for his wayward bride that he would wash her and make her holy. No husband is called to anything less. Second, marriage was designed to point to this mystery. Paul is not saying, hey, it turns out marriage is like a really good illustration for what Jesus did, right? No, that is not what he's saying at all. He's saying that when God gave the gift of marriage in the mind of almighty God, he was going to give us a living picture of how he was going to love his bride. In every marriage, Christian or not, Christ is pictured. And that picture is a lot clearer in some marriages than others. You can be sure of that. But marriage was never meant to be an end in and of itself. It's supposed to be pointing to something greater and that greater thing is the marriage of Christ and his church. My prayer this morning was not only that you would accept God's design for marriage, but that you would see it as good and beautiful because in Ephesians 5, we found three ways Christians are called to serve. All are called to submit to one another. Wives are called to submit to their husbands and husbands are called to love their wives. Marriage is a lifelong commitment But because we understand this mystery, we realize that it's only momentary compared to what it points to. Like if marriage is so great, have you ever wondered why Jesus never was married? I mean, if marriage is really this glorious gift to all of mankind and created to glorify God, why didn't Jesus ever marry? Well, the answer is he will. In fact, not only does the Bible begin with a marriage, but it ends with one. And one day Christ will present his bride to himself, perfect, blameless, without spot or wrinkle, dressed in white, completely forgiven, saved forever. Are you a part of the bride of Christ? Do you understand this mystery of marriage? And if you understand it, has it changed the way that you treat your spouse? Men, have you stepped up to your calling? And when you go to give an account, what are you going to say? This morning, I have three pastoral charges. I have three ways that we can live out this mystery of marriage within our own lives. First pastoral charge, embrace God's design for marriage. Embrace God's design for marriage. Wives, will you submit to your husband's leadership and authority? Will you respect your husband and the role that God has given him? Well, you don't know my husband. My husband. My husband doesn't love me like Christ in the church at all. And listen, you're probably right. In fact, in 1 Peter, Peter was talking to women who were married to non-Christians, and this is what he wrote. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, like I said earlier, this is not a case of a husband who is abusive. It's just for a husband who is a bum, right? Right? Who's not fulfilling his marriage roles, the Bible still calls you to submit and serve him anyway. Why? As a witness to Christ, as a witness to the fact that even though you're not a Christian, let me show you how Christ has changed me. Husbands, will you step up and lead? Will you strive to love your wife like you love your own body? Because guess what? Your wife is your own body. You are one flesh. And are you willing to die for your bride like Christ did? I know most husbands, even non-Christian husbands who would happily say, yes, of course I would die for my bride, of course I would die for her. And if you're willing to say that, let me ask you, now are you willing to live for her? Will you choose every day to love her and to serve her and to lead her in family devotions and to pray for her and enable her to be the woman of God that God is calling her to be? And I'll say, if you're not sure how all of this works, there, this is such a big and controversial subject that first off, if you disagree with the things that I laid out, you're not alone. There's, there's many godly Christians who would disagree with many of the things that I say. This is not a gospel issue in that way. And I'd invite you to come and ask questions if you have them. And if, maybe if you don't disagree, but you're like, I'm, not, I'm still shaky on, on how this actually looks. Let me encourage you with this proverb. Wisdom is found in an abundance of counselors. Please humbly ask older, more experienced saints what this looked like. Heck, even ask your pastor. I'd be happy to talk to you about it. But if you you don't wanna do any of those things, then I highly recommend the book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy Keller. Uh, We've got three or four copies in the lobby. Uh, It's my favorite book on on marriage. I use it for premarital counseling. And I think it'd be a blessing if everyone in this church read that book because it is so wonderful. So, and let me know if you have any questions on that. Second pastoral charge. Recognize that your marriage is momentary. Recognize that your marriage is momentary. Our world believes the lie that you can only be whole if you find the one, the person who will completely complete you and satisfy all the longings of your heart. And even within the church, we have this misconception that you're only a mature, healthy, whole Christian if you're married, and that's just not true. Pastor and theologian John Piper once said, never to have married is not a tragedy. Otherwise, Jesus's life is a tragedy. Tragedy is craving the perfect marriage so much that we make a God out of being married. Marriage does not and should not meet all of our needs. It should not be an idol. It should not and cannot take the place of Jesus himself. Marriage is for but a moment. Jesus is for eternity. How we live our marriages and our singleness will show if Jesus is our supreme treasure. Marriage is a good gift, but it's not ultimate. Don't idolize it. And maybe even more importantly, embrace what marriage points to. Third pastoral charge, embrace the mystery of marriage. Embrace the mystery of marriage. Listen to me, church. If you live happily married for 50 plus years, but you don't get the mystery that marriage is pointing to, then you do not know the first thing about marriage. This is the mystery of marriage, that Jesus, who is equal with God in every way, left the glories of heaven, took on human nature, submitted himself to the will of the Father, That Jesus modeled submission every moment that he was here on this earth. Not because he was inherently less valuable than the Father, but because his role in our salvation was different yet complementary to the Father. He humbled himself by going to the cross to die for his bride. And on that cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And because he was faithful in every way, God raised him from the dead and now he has been given the name that is above every name, the name of Christ Jesus. And here is where the mystery kicks in. That anyone, no matter your race, no matter your nationality, No matter your background, no matter your sins, anyone can be made one with Christ because whoever believes in Jesus is united with Christ through faith. And you are one, not only with Jesus, but with the whole body of Christ. That through this union, all your sins have been taken away. Christ has given you his perfect righteousness and you have come into the body of Christ and the family of God. And today, if you've never done that, repent of your selfishness. Repent of your pride. Repent of any and all sin and put your faith alone in the Savior and you will be washed. And all the people said, let's pray. Oh God of love, you established marriage for the well-being and happiness of mankind. Yours was the plan and it was always with Christ and church in your mind. Thank you for revealing to us these truths. May the gospel change the way that we love our spouses and may we be satisfied in you alone. And Lord, we ask that you would hold us fast, that one day we may be presented to your son in the marriage supper of the land and that on that day we would be sanctified, washed and without any blemish or wrinkle. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Fork and Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, If you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horkenbaptist.com.